0: hello everyone welcome to the stairway to ceo podcast brought to you by future commerce i'm your host lee green and it's my mission to bring you a real honest and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life we'll talk about their climb to the top their stumbles along the way and the steps they took to get them to where they are so tune in to get inspired listen to some real talk and enjoy the show Welcome to episode 20 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today we've got a great interview for you with Adele Archer, the co-founder and CEO of Eternova, Named Consumer Startup of the Year by the Stevie Awards in 2019, Eternova is an innovative company that honors the lives of remarkable people and pets that have passed away by turning their cremated ashes into diamonds. In this episode, Adele shares with us how the passing of her close mentor and friend, Tracy, led to the realization that she could make a diamond from the carbon in her ashes, sparking the idea for her company, Eternova. We talk about her experience working in product marketing at companies such as Big Commerce and Trendkite. how earning her MBA at Acton School of Business helped prepare her for being an entrepreneur and what it was like to be on Shark Tank, where she received a $600,000 investment from Mark Cuban. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Adele, thank you so much for being here today. I'm super excited to hear your incredible story in building a Turnova. Um, really fascinating company, and I can't wait to get to you know how you thought of that concept and how yeah. you started building <laughs> this company. It's incredible. Um, but
1: let's start from the very early days. Where are you from? Yeah. Well, hey, thank you for having me, Lee. I really appreciate it. Um, I am from originally uh, Central Coast, California, um, is where I grew up, and um, and have moved around quite a bit, uh, but now I live in Austin, Texas. Nice. And what was childhood like for you? Childhood was um, well. I I always joke that I'm kind of a recovering perfectionist. I'm or just an overachiever, we should say. <laughs> um, just a lot of uh, tenacity, and you know, I'm I'm very um, driven and goal oriented. So in childhood, that was you know kind of high achieving in school, but also just had a total, like entrepreneurial flair, you know, early days, lemonade stands. And, you know, uh, my mom had me selling door to door when I was like 14. And, (laughs) um, so just, she had, she's an entrepreneur as well. And she had a home design source book, um, for people building custom homes in California. So I was helping advertising spots in her magazine to small businesses. Nice. She was putting you to work at a young age. I know. Yeah. Learning how to get rejected early on. <laughs> Great.
0: Yeah, so seriously. That was when you were 14, was there anything that happened when you were younger that kind of pushed you in the entrepreneurial world? Or when did you realize you wanted to maybe be an entrepreneur?
1: You know, it's kind of interesting. I actually like, despite being very entrepreneurial early on, I don't even think it like crossed my mind. Um, and My family's actually all uh, on my dad's side. They're all actors and actresses. So I really wanted to be an actress when I was younger. And I had an agent in LA and like I did a bunch of stuff and, you know, then uh, got braces and, (laughs) you know, you take your your hiatus. And then as I was kind of thinking about like, you know, what do I want to study in college? um, I actually decided I wanted to go into political science um, because I'm just a very mission driven person. And, Saw a lot of problems in the world, and I thought, you know, maybe if I go into politics, that's where I could go and and solve some of these problems. Um, So that was my undergrad, and uh, I lived in D.C. I, you know, did policy work there, and I just ended up finding that um, I I just didn't feel like it was kind of my my. I'm not an inside out disruptor. (laughs) You have to be really patient, uh, is what I found, and I, I realized, you know, I think outside in disruption is more interesting. And, and that was really, I think, what led me to an entrepreneurial path is saying, well, how can I go and change the world as we know it and, and, you know, solve some of these problems in a way that I can move quickly and, you know, really do something that uh, makes a difference.
0: So what were some of those um, first maybe internships or jobs you had when you were in school?
1: Yeah. um, So I always had like, I I was always moonlighting. So i worked in restaurants for forever. And, you know, you've definitely learned your (laughs) like work ethic and and hustle from working restaurants and bar jobs. Um, but then my first internship was in Washington, DC at a policy research, uh, think tank. And, um, you know, that was awesome. It was a great experience. Um, but I think after spending some time there realizing, you know, politics is probably not it. Um, you know, so what's next and, uh, What was crazy was I was actually down in Guatemala of all places. Um, I was uh, working this event where there was all these policy reformers and they were doing this like startup weekend for policy reform and they had entrepreneurs coming in, showing them, hey, here's how to like break things down, simplify and like you know, go and like implement change now, you know, stop taking years and years and years to do this. And I was so like fascinated by the way these entrepreneurs were thinking and the frameworks and the questions that they were asking that I ended up chatting with them. And, you know, one of them is from Austin, Texas, and he had a business program here um, called the Acton School of Business, completely Socratic method. And, um, you know, he's like, hey, you should come check this out. And that's what led to my next chapter. All right, so
0: you heard about this Acton School and it sounds like that's where you ended up going. And so what how
1: was that experience? Oh my gosh, it was amazing. I mean, they take they're they're a very non-traditional MBA. You know, you don't go there cuz you're trying to get an MBA, you go there cuz you're trying to be an entrepreneur. And um It's you know only the teachers there are all entrepreneurs. Um, You know they actually originally were part of UT and Macombs, and they ended up deciding to split out because they weren't given enough kind of freedom to to do a bunch of experimentation. So, um, you know, in in resilient or or rebellious entrepreneur fashion, (laughs) they went and created their own. And um, you know it was all learning by doing. You know they had us selling dictionaries door to door and cold calling CEOs and being like, here's how to sell, go do it. And, um, you know, we also had classes that, uh, it was just all the fundamentals like learning how to manage cash, learning how to manage people. Um, you know, and then we talked a lot about what does it mean to live a life of meaning and how do you make sure that you're integrating that into what you go and do? Cause you don't want to live with regret and look back and say, what was this all for? So it was just really cool to be thinking about that, you know, early on.
0: Right. A way to incorporate meaning into what you want to build is definitely. um, So you're saying you learned that from the school that you went to Acton.
1: They had us think about it a lot, you know, and so it was just really cool having an entire class that, you know, for two semesters was making you do things like write your obituary, you know, like, (laughs) seriously, yeah, you're like, what do I want people to say about me at the end of my life? You know, and, what are my core values? Like, how am I kind of working back and making sure I'm in alignment with those? And, you know, there's just, there was so much thoughtfulness that went into it. That's really cool.
0: And so did you um,
1: have a job? Were you working in the restaurants or something during this uh, school time or? So this was actually a two year program they put into nine months and made you work 100 hours of work per week. So they intentionally tried to break you and they gave you way more work than you could possibly do. And so it was a crazy experience. They designed it with the uh navy seals so they were like okay like let's see if we can't create a parallel experience just with business um and it was awesome I, I mean you really do you you learn what it's like to fail and to fall on your face and to not get it all done and feel unprepared and like completely sleep deprived and then they're like oh by the way this is what it's like to start a company like are you made up or, like are you cut out for this are you sure yeah. are you still uh interested in doing this <laughs> i literally yeah. yeah it was such a good way to to help you come to that realization on your own, you know, before you put your whole everything on the line. (laughs) So when you were in that program, was there, what was the breaking? When did you have
0: a breaking point where you're like, oh gosh, this is like really, is this, what did I get myself into?
1: Oh yeah. Everybody did. And it like, it's hilarious because they have so much data on knowing when people are going to break that they literally call it the dip month. And, uh, they assign us the book, the dip by Seth Godin. And basically that that book, right? I know. And the whole book is just telling you to quit. <laughs> like, so you basically are sitting there being like, should I quit? Should I quit? Should I quit? And you know, you end up like some people decide to quit. And then other people are like, no, like this is really hard. And I want to give up, but I'm not going to. I'm going to see it through. And that's when I feel like you, you, they intentionally make you hit rock bottom. So you just feel how good it feels to be back on top when you get through it, you know?
0: Yeah. So give us an example. What did you kind of hit? Like what made you hit rock bottom? And, you know,
1: you're reading that book and what made you stay in the program? Maybe it was because every class was um, Socratic based and they would assign you all of this information to read through and you'd have to build these like super complicated financial models that you totally did not have the skills to build. Um, And So I remember, oh my gosh, I remember this like super complicated case and there was like all these layer of debt financing. And like, I didn't know what the heck any of this stuff was. And I was supposed to come in the next day as the CEO of that company and present to my board of directors, how we were going to get ourselves out of this like huge, you know, hole that we were in and we were about to be a bankrupt. And I was like, I have no idea how to build this financial model. And, um, You know, it's just like, and and you're tired and you're exhausted and you just feel overwhelmed and you feel feel like you're just failing and you don't understand any of this stuff that they're telling you to do. And, you know, and, and, uh, I think it's just that like decision of like, you know what, I'm just going to do my best. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to do what I can, I'm going to do my best. And that's just has to be good enough, you know? And, uh, I think when you just start to like build that pattern of like, I'm going to do my best and then I'm going to figure out and the next one's going to be better and the next one's going to be better. Like they were teaching me how to fail and in a way that um, shows you what you're capable of. And um, it's just been one of the best gifts as somebody who, used to always want to be you know a like straight A's and there was a very clear formula for how you succeeded this was like the opposite of that right and it was the exact conditioning I needed to you know kind of get over that like there is no a plus in business you just have to figure stuff out right like- <laughs> I love that there is no a plus in business that's awesome uh, so what happened after the program so you finish it you're like you survive <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah so I was really young when I did it um, I was 23 when I Graduated. Um, And so I decided, you know, yes, I want to be an entrepreneur. I've completely validated that I love this. Um, But I also had not worked in like a real business before. It was, you know, DC think tanks are definitely not the pace of businesses. So I decided to go into tech um, and, you know, just wanted to work next to a couple of really good leaders. And you know, see how they thought through things, and see what companies at scale looked like, and how they operated, and what departments you know did what, and all of that. And so, I decided to go into product marketing um, because in tech, product marketing, a lot of the time, you know, it's you're, you're effectively a mini CEO of your product line, you know, so all the way from what's the idea and what are we trying to build and partnering with the product and eng team and beta testing and, you know, developing the messaging and the go-to-market strategy, launching it, you know, seeing how successful it is in market, incorporating that feedback loop. And, you know, so a lot of that was like, literally primers for starting a company um and then you know enough to be dangerous about all of the different online marketing channels as well um so first started at big commerce um which is an e-commerce platform here in austin Um, they actually just ipo'd like two weeks ago um and so i was over all of their uh all of their integrations to different marketplaces and that was so cool because i got to see how um all the top tech companies in the world go to market. Amazon, eBay, Pinterest, Square, Facebook, You know, was partnering with all of those companies and launching um, our integrations and our partnerships together. Um, and that was awesome. And then I moved over to another company called TrendKite. Uh, they did analytics for PR and they were the fastest growing company here in Austin, um, tech company. Um, and I headed up their product marketing team. So I got to build all of that from the ground up. Um, and that was just an extraordinary experience. Hey,
0: real quick, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Future Commerce Insiders. Insiders is a weekly newsletter that brings you the information you need at the intersection of technology, entrepreneurship, and commerce. If you're a tech founder or an operator at an e-commerce brand, Insiders is purpose-built just for you. Commerce connects all of us, and entrepreneurship gives anyone the opportunity for economic advancement. So, commerce entrepreneurship has the ability to change the world. Want to join us? Do it right now at FutureCommerce.fm. That's FutureCommerce.fm. So, what were some of the um,
1: challenges you faced in those roles um, working in product marketing? I mean, certainly there's there's lots of them. I think one of the bit the best lessons that I learned um, was what like good cross functional collaboration did and didn't look like. Um, and uh, also, like how people are measured just so influences their behavior. so for example, um, at big commerce, there was kind of a, a period of time where um, the product team was just they were um, being measured based on speed of delivery, and so they wanted to ship products at all costs, um no matter if it was market ready, no matter if like the customers were getting any value out of it. Um, and so that was just a really. Kind of, uh, it was a friction point because it was, you know, marketing. We're looking at this thing like, I don't feel comfortable marketing this. This is not ready to go. You know, I, I don't want to go and, and talk about how great it is when I know that it's missing major features. Um, and so that was, you know, a lot of kind of uh, process change that was painful at the time. You know, to go implement and say, look, we're going to gate this. You know, it has to pass beta with you know at least a seven out of ten, you know, satisfaction score from beta customers before I'm going to launch this. Um, and that was, you know, definitely challenging, but I think as we started to align the organization around that, we convinced the CEO to change how product was measured. Um, you know, it got easier, it got better. Um, and we saw the same thing on the sales side, you know, a part of my business partner, Garrett and I, we actually both worked together at both big commerce and Trendkite, And, um, he was in sales, I was in marketing. And there was just like such a value of having somebody in the other department that you just you can get in a room, you can say, here's, a, here's the business goal. Like, how are we solving this? Not like he said, yes, she said that and like, there can be so much mudslinging between departments that is just really unproductive. Um, and so I think I got to witness a lot of that and see what like good collaboration look like and what bad collaboration look like. And, you know, I'm just not going to tolerate that at <laughs> to a turn of a you know, it's not walled off gardens that we're trying to build. Yeah. And so what
0: are some of your tricks, I guess, and tips that you have for, you know, collaborating across departments?
1: Um, I mean, first of all, I think it comes down to the people that you're hiring. I really do. Um, you know, I think, at Eternava, what we look for is is growth mindset. You know, we want people to not care about being right, but care about finding the right answer. Um, you know, or, or that we're all just trying to discover the right answer, and it doesn't matter if it's mine or if it's yours, or you know, if you say something interesting, we're like, oh, that's fascinating. Let's dig on that. Um, so I think it's finding folks that um, you know that don't have, that aren't so egoic and care more about like, how do we get better and that constant improvement cycle, um, and are willing to change their mind on things. Um, I think all of those are just really fundamentally important. And then reminding people that like, that's what it's all about. Right. Is, you know, Hey, like all of us have equity in this company and we're trying to build something that's really great and successful and all of us will see upside, you know, by, creating friction between departments and not playing well together, like that's going against that goal. Um, so those are yeah. some of the things that I think about, but you know, y- you also have to kind of seed out bad apples when somebody's a friction point, like it's on you as the leader to go deal with that, you know, and not that because one person can be very poisonous and to that dynamic, you know? Absolutely. So what made you want to start your own company? Well, I definitely always wanted to start my own company, like since graduating from Acton. Um, So it was really a matter of like finding what it was that we were going to, you know, go and do full time. And I think that like actually is not talked about a lot is people think that entrepreneurship is like, Oh, one day I decided I want to like work for myself. And then I jump ship and go start my company. Like, you shouldn't do that. You should wait and make sure that like you found the idea that is worth five to 10 years of your life. There's a good market opportunity for it. There's an intense customer need, you know, like there should be a checklist and it should clear that bar before you like jump ship. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we spent a lot of time, like, you know, looking at different, like all kinds of different, um, you know, companies, and then you wanted to align with what things that you actually care about. And again, I'm, I'm very mission driven. So I wanted to do something that was not just, you know, an e-commerce store, um, like it needed to do something meaningful in the world. And so, um, it took me a while to figure that out. And I did a lot of things along the way and failed businesses and, you know, stuff like that. But, um, when we finally found a turn of a, I mean, there was just so many stars that aligned to know that this was the right thing, um, that it became clear. So originally when we were starting, um, it was just total like business opportunity i had a friend of mine um, who went to acton and his father was involved with this lab-grown diamond company and i had never heard of lab-grown diamonds i didn't know that you could literally grow a diamond in a laboratory setting like above ground that just blew my mind i thought it was so cool and um so when he said that his father like they grow diamonds for a lot of applications so a lot of industrial use cases And so that's what they were doing, but they wanted to break into the consumer market. And so that was kind of originally what we were looking at was like, oh, we could probably help you build a consumer brand, you know, to market lab-grown diamonds. Um, And so we started looking at that and I just was fascinated by this industry, um, you know, and and saying, okay, well, should we build the consumer-facing brand or should, is that the best business model or should we go up the supply chain, down the supply chain? You know, what's kind of like, where's the opportunity in this space? Um, and so we were just being, you know, business school students about it and like working through our frameworks being like, where's the best model. And right around that time, um, I actually had my really close friend and my business mentor get diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Um, and that was just happening on a very personal side of my life. And, um, very quickly after that, she passed Tracy and, um, Tracy was like to call her a mentor does not do her justice. You know, she was, She was just a really special person that, um, helped me through some very hard, you know, periods of my life where I just really had a lot of anxiety. I I just really kind of struggled early on in my career with debilitating anxiety. And she was my rock that like helped me through that in a way that like beyond any friends, you know, I've ever had. And, um, so, you know, when Tracy passed, she didn't have any kids, she wasn't married. And so she actually decided to have her ashes, um, divided among three of us it was me her aunt and another close friend um and she just left us a note that was like hey you know go do something meaningful that you think both of us would really like uh so i just started doing all this research you know and again this is just like on a personal side i was looking at what could i do with ashes what are you know the different options that we have to memorialize people and you know that was when i was just like man i had never done a lot of i had not had a lot of firsthand experience in the death care industry and I was just like blown away by just how little it's changed, you know, it's like no innovation in hundreds of years. And these just like really like trinkety crappy products, you know, that you're finding and there's nothing that felt meaningful and special enough for her. And, um, you know, it was just kind of offensive. I'm like, I don't want to put her in an urn and let her collect dust in the back of a closet, you know? And, um, so then it was over dinner one night, one of the diamond scientists we were working with um, actually told us that this process would even be possible, that you can extract carbon from cremated remains, ashes, and grow a real diamond from that carbon source. And there was one company at the time that was doing this. And he just blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, I've been looking for what to do with ashes you know, for six months right now. And he didn't even know that. And so it was just this one of those kind of like, okay, like that is just eerie that you just said that like, this is clearly a sign that I need to do this. Um, and so I went to go start the process and I was so excited and, um, it was just a really off-putting experience. Like the company I called just, they didn't ask who this was for. They didn't ask her relationship to me. Um, I was asking questions about how the process worked and it was just like kind of cagey and not transparent and, you know, just enough to be like, I don't know. Like, I just don't know if I can trust this company to send my most precious person to. Um, and so that was really kind of when we started looking at this very seriously and being like, look, I'm the customer. Like I totally get this. I would do this in a heartbeat, but it's no wonder nobody's heard about this. Like, it feels like it's getting executed on wrong. And like, this is an amazing way to honor somebody. So that was really when we decided to refocus and, you know, I was like, well, I'm going to get a diamond for Tracy either way. So if it doesn't work out, I'll be happy. And uh, fortunately, a lot of people actually would do this for their loved ones too.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So how did you go about that actually to find out that other people would be interested in doing the same thing that you wanted to do with Tracy's
1: Ashes? Yeah. So I mean, fortunately, because there was, you know, just enough awareness since this company had been around for a little while, um, there was enough search volume to be able to put a website together and to drive some initial traffic and, you know, gauge whether people wanted to do this. And I mean, it was just unbelievable. It was immediate product market fit. Um, I think our first sale was a $20,000 sale and it was a gentleman in Canada who did two of our largest diamonds. Um, for his daughter, his 19 year old daughter who had passed. And you're just like, man, to have that be your first sale and to know that you're doing something that is so unbelievably special and meaningful, both of her her dad and her mom, we're going to have, you know, matching rings made and, and both have police diamonds. And it was just like, we were hooked.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And so with Tracy's, did you guys end up making the diamond or did you use the company that you talked to initially?
1: Oh, we did it. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, it was a very complicated supply chain to set up and like, Lord, I mean, just the, to set this up, there's like scientists all over the world that we had to just unearth, you know, they're not like Google searchable. This is, you know, finding an expert that knows an expert that like gives you a phone number in Amsterdam, and then you have to go hunt that scientist down. And, you know, then you convince them to work with you. And it's <laughs> a lot of rejection and no's, and just convincing people that trust me, you really do want to help us with this.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, my grandmother passed about two years ago, and I have her engagement ring that I wear. So I get to wear her engagement ring, which is a diamond, obviously. And it's when I heard your story of what you're building. I'm like, Oh, my gosh, for other people to be able to have that in the way I have, you know, something special from my grandmother is really, really, you know, an amazing thing. So tell us about, you know, the first early days and, you know, how you
1: started building the company. Yeah, definitely. Well, and and one thought on that, even like, so we actually just launched, we're partnered with Baylor university, um, and Baylor's, uh, grief program is actually studying us and our process and how this helps somebody through a grieving process. Um, and what they found was, uh, it's this idea of anchoring, um, you know, that, you have emotions that, you know, come up every time you look down, you know, at your grandmother's ring or at an a, a diamond. And, you know, you just, you get to think about your person more often. You create a ritual with them, um, you know, and it just, it can help someone psychologically, um, you know, in a way that having an urn full of ashes in the back of a closet won't. Um, so it's just, it's fascinating how there is just like so much more psychology to it. So early days, we bootstrapped at a start And that's just a really, I think it's a great, if you have the opportunity to bootstrap, it's just, you learn so much and you have to be so intentional with how you invest. And um, we didn't pay ourselves for like the first year. So it was definitely high stakes. Um, My business partner got married, quit his job and bought a house all within the same month of each other and then went to zero salary. (laughs) Yeah, so we were like, okay, back against a wall, like we got to figure this out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that was that was really what it was. Like we did everything. We sold, you know, all of our our first million dollars in sales, and you know, our um, we were managing all of our cash flow. And you know, it's definitely it's definitely a different beast when you're bootstrapping. Um, but it means that you're just adding. You have to be so intentional with adding as much value as you possibly can to your customers. Um, and I think that that was a really powerful discovery early on. Was um, you know something that we that I wanted from that experience when we originally were looking at with this with the other company was transparency. You know, I wanted to know how do I know that you're actually doing as you say? You're actually putting her ashes in this diamond or her carbon. So when we started out, we just wanted to you know be transparent, and we sent people pictures and videos and updates. And what we ended up seeing was like as we were doing that. I mean, accidentally kind of like people were getting these pictures and they were like, oh my God, like I'm at work and I'm falling, and I just showed everybody around me and like I sent it to all my friends and family and we're just like, wow, okay. Like clearly this, these updates are adding so much value to people. Like how do we do more of that and like really up the ante and make this like an experience. And so that was kind of a huge like aha moment. I think early on was like, this is not really a diamond company that we're building. This is just as much about the grief changing journey that somebody is going on by having something positive to look forward to at a time they had nothing to look forward to it's creating a conversation with their community in a way that like nobody was engaging with them you know previously because we're all weird and awkward about grief and like it's giving them something to you know really at the end like kind of have this like anticipation that's built and then when the diamond comes home there's just the words that people use are calm and peace and closure And so we were just like, wow, okay, this really is about the process parallel, like it's parallel processing with someone's grief. And that's the actual business that we're in. That's well said. And
0: how long does it take when you receive the ashes to, like you say, grow a diamond?
1: Yeah, so end to end, it's about an eight month process, um, eight to 10, depending on the color that we're doing. There's a lot of steps to it. I mean, it's a very intricate um, process. And you know, the way to think about it is someone's like actually commissioning a diamond, you know, a custom diamond to be made from their loved one's personal carbon. We work on one individual at a time. We work for one diamond in the machine at a time. Um, you know, and there's many steps to it from purifying the carbon out of the ashes. Um, you know, that's a multi-step process that takes almost two months to do. Um, and you know, there's about one to 4% carbon yield. So it's, it's a, you know, very, very intricate process to get it to a purity level that you need to be able to then grow a diamond. Um, then we have these unbelievable machines that recreate the conditions as under the earth, high pressure, high temperature, that over time that carbon is crystallizing on top of a diamond seed and it's growing into a raw diamond. Then we have master cutters that are studying it, that are looking at you know, where did the inclusions um, you know, grow into the diamond, just like a diamond under the earth. And you know, you're mapping out what are we cutting. A customer has told us exactly what size and color and shape they want. So we have to hit those specs. Um, and you know, then if there's a certain color that they are doing, we go through additional coloration processes. Um, we can uh, actually laser engrave their name on the girdle of the diamond. So it can be custom inscribed. Um, and then we can help them set it in jewelry. So we have um, jewelers that will design these really beautiful custom, you know, legacy pieces that become, you know, the piece that you're going to be able to pass down over time. So what are the what's the average cost? What's the price range for doing something like this? So the entry points at three thousand, and then it'll just go up based on size and color. Um, we see most of our customers around like seventy five hundred. 8,000. Although interestingly, during COVID, that's gone up. Um, And we also offer a firm, we partner with a firm. So we have consumer financing, allowing somebody to have a payment plan over, you know, quite an extended period of time.
0: But there's so many challenges in building a company. There's always moments where we fall on our face as a founder and have to peel ourselves up from the ground.
1: What were some of those moments in building your company? Yeah, I mean, gosh, there's definitely been, you know, this has not been an easy journey by any means. Um, early on, uh, we had at one point, our entire supply chain go away. And Uh-oh. that doesn't sound good. That sucked. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the um, facility that we were partnered with, you know, decided, nope, we just don't want to be in this business anymore. And, you know, we're pretty brutal about just saying, yeah, you have like 30 days to figure this out. and. Um, as you can imagine, I think like that was just such a moment of, I think because of what we do, I I could have been focused on like, Oh my God, what if I fail? What are my friends and family going to think like, et cetera. But it was so not about that. It was like, I have way too many people in process right now who are depending on us to like do this for their most precious loved one. And they're grieving like, I can't fail them, you know? And it was just this like, total certainty of like we are going to freaking solve this problem because i'm not going to tell them like that you know they can't have their diamond like so that's just not an option and so my business partner and i we were i remember over um in europe in amsterdam at the time and uh we just went to a hotel after receiving that news we immediately just started like going down every possible lead channel that we could and we're just you know it was like kind of a war room of you know calling down any place that we could go and we ended up finding this new facility in Germany and we called them and, you know, somehow got a hold of their CEO and literally redirected Garrett's flight, you know, to go immediately straight there and meet with them. And I um, mean it was pretty crazy, but we pulled it off and uh were able to get stood up on a new supplier and not have to uh, you know, tell people that we weren't going to be able to fulfill their diamonds. And now we have a lot of supply chain redundancy and we're good to go. It's not, <laughs> I've learned <laughs> not going to happen again. <laughs> right. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But uh, that was definitely a moment, you know, that you're like, all right, our back is up against a wall. How do you respond? Absolutely. And what about, you know, we're
0: all human. We all make mistakes. Is there anything that you've done that you're like, oh, you look back and you're like,
1: why did I do that? I really, I learned from that one. Oh, there's so many moments like that for sure. Um, I mean, I feel like I just am, I'm learning so much about what it means to be a CEO. Um, Mm -hmm. That's just a really weird, when you're in a fast growth environment and you're a first time founder, first time CEO, you know, you just, it feels like you blink and you go from kind of like part of the team and, um, you know, just like a hustler contributor, just like everybody else to all of a sudden, like everything that you say and everything that you do like carries so much weight and what you do and don't compliment, and you know like people just like it, it's just crazy, and they start um, looking at you so differently, you're like, why are they looking at me like that exactly <laughs> like it, it it's kind of mind blowing because you're like, I don't feel like I've changed, you know and <laughs> right. like, yeah, I'm I'm the same, but for some reason, the CEO title, everybody all of a sudden thinks <laughs> I'm a big deal, <laughs> yeah, seriously, it's yeah, it's so weird, it yeah. is so weird, and I'm still getting used to it um. Definitely still getting used to it. But yeah, I mean, I feel like because of that, you just you underestimate sometimes, um, you know, just things you say and do and the impact it has. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, you know, I I think there's just such um there are such expectations of you you're always kind of trying to strike this balance of like making sure that you're not coming off as too like. You know, performance and numbers focus, but you're really like, you know, caring for um, the culture and the mission and having people feel really energized and excited about what they're doing. And you know, I feel like I constantly am playing with that balance of, you know, if I talk start talking about too many numbers or, you know, hey, here's how we're thinking about this next investment round. You know, people are like, oh, she's so, you know, focused on exiting or, you know, and then you're like, okay, no, like, gotta go over correct it, correct that and. And it's just kind of that constant balance of, um, you know, making sure that everything you're saying is really intentional and, you know, uh, just erring towards like really building morale and building the team up and, you know, making sure that the levers behind the scenes are working. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's, that continues to be just a tough balance. And I've put my foot in my mouth a lot too. I mean, like talking, talking about Black Lives Matter right now. Like it's, you know, you want to, you have to address it. And it's super, super important. And I believe in everything that's being said, and I'm so supportive, but you're inevitably going to put your foot in your mouth, you know, as a leader, like there's just no way that you're going to say all the right things and it's not going to, you know, someone's not going to take something the right way. And so you just have to constantly be like humbly failing and learning and, you know, trying to be better like you are saying, you know, a lot of times, well, entrepreneurship in general
0: just takes a lot of positive attitude. It takes a lot of, um, you know, keeping that resiliency muscle strong. Mm-hmm. Um, what's a routine activity or thought process that helps you stay on track and motivated every day?
1: That's a good question. Um, I have, I do have a morning routine that I do every morning. Um, and so, you know, it's, Usually consists of meditation, getting outside, walking around, listening to audiobooks, positive content consumption, gratitude journaling, cold showers, Wim Hof. <laughs> um, so, a lot of kind of the, the morning ritual practices. Um, I also have a CEO coach and she is just wonderful. I think a lot of like people are totally right when they say like CEO can be a lonely job, you know, and it can be a thankless job, you know. Um, I, I think people, expect so much of you and you're already dealing with a ton of like stressors and all like ultimately everything is on you you know and you have to accept that extreme ownership um but then you know you like you'll be handling all the issues and then when people can be super critical and then not take a moment to say hey you're doing a good job on this that can be really hard you know and so i think having um figuring out who are your like what's your really small group of inner circle, whether that's at the company or outside of the company, um, that can kind of like give you a little bit of positive reinforcement. I think you need that, you know, to keep that confidence. Um, I'm part of EO and I've just found, um, entrepreneur organization, the the forum that we have is just wonderful. And it's so great to be with other entrepreneurs that deal with similar things and you're like, okay, I'm not the only one. And, you know, so I think that that's been like awesome. Um, but yeah. Or that someone else experienced it way worse than you. Oh my gosh, yeah. Oh man, I would right. not trade like my problems for some of the things that people have gone through. I'm like, geez. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so what's the biggest thing you've learned about becoming a CEO and leader? Oh my goodness. I'm learning so much every single day. Um, It's such a shift between... Uh, going from a hustler, entrepreneur, like got to make it work, got to like, you know, just figure it out. I mean, it's a lot of individual contribution to learning, not just how to let go, but it's more um, spending as much thought process around the people systems. And, um, you know, what are you doing to be supporting people? And you have to be thinking like when you have rockstar talent you have to be thinking two steps ahead you know and always be thinking about like what's their next career advancement you know what's their next bonus opportunity um you know i've made that mistake already just like not putting enough thought into that and then losing somebody because they didn't see like you know what was next for them and so um i think that has been something that i have to and in some ways it forces you to slow down you know you want to be very task driven or at least i do um And I need to not be that way and think a lot more of like, what is the message that I want to, you know, pull through in the weekly meeting? How am I thinking about, you know, how this person is doing and their personal, like feeling like they're developing and growing, you know? And so it's a lot of like trying to put more thought into those things. And it's definitely a muscle that I'm, I'm working on building. (laughs) Yeah. Not, Not there yet, still working on it. (laughs) Always a process. Always a process.
0: Um, Shark Tank. I know you were on Shark Tank. I was watching a little bit of your episode, especially during the uh, negotiation phase between the (laughs) sharks, which was really interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I'd love to hear your experience. You know, what made you want to go on Shark Tank? How did you get involved? And then tell us about being on the show. Yeah, so
1: we were, Shark Tank actually reached out to us. Um, originally we were uh, when we were a really young company. Um, and at the time we ended up telling them we, we weren't ready yet. Um, we were like, I, our supply chain is not ready for shark tank. Um, and so we delayed it for a bit and then we decided, okay, I think we're ready to do this. Um, and for us, I mean, a lot of people, um, don't even know that, this is an option. This is something that you can do to turn your loved one's ashes into a diamond. So um, we're really creating an entire category. And our biggest opportunity is awareness building. Um, Also, our fastest growing channel is word of mouth. Um, So it's very interesting when people hear um, about us and about the way that we're doing things and just our mission and our intention to build this very um, grief wellness focused experience around the diamond that's what resonates and so then they tell their friends and family and there's just this huge ripple effect um on average somebody tells 20 other people after hearing about us so we just knew going on shark tank you know it's the 7 million viewers but then it's the 20 people that they tell is like the actual reach and roi um so for us it was kind of a no-brainer to do that um Going in, we knew what our kind of parameters were. We're not gonna go below such and such valuation. And you know, here are terms that we will and won't agree to. And I think that's really important because mm-hmm. you see a lot of entrepreneurs kind of give away the farm. And you yeah. know, you're like, oh, please don't do that. <laughs> don't take that deal. Um so yeah, I mean, it was it was an intense experience, definitely very intense. <laughs>
0: yeah. And you walked away with an
1: investment from Mark Cuban. I think it was a 600 k for nine percent. Yep. So, and and the way that we structured that, so that was like a good kind of example was um, we were not going to go below an 8 million valuation. So we ended up structuring a deal where he got some advisor shares in exchange for an increased level of um, involvement, you know, that he would be a direct line access. You know, we could leverage him at, you know, just be able to have phone calls on a monthly basis, things like that. So, um, you know, I think there are some creative deals you can put together there. Um, I was like, top 5% valuations offered on Shark Tank. It was pretty sweet. <laughs>
0: nice. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They really do ask for a lot. I mean,
0: every time I've seen yeah. that show and their kind of offers, it makes me cringe a little bit because it's also like, you know, these people are building a business. They need more than just you, you know, it's like, I understand they bring value, but really how much value are they bringing when they have so many portfolio companies? I don't, I don't know. I think it's, um, yeah, I think sometimes
1: they take advantage. Yeah yeah it's funny because they accuse you of taking advantage i know <laughs> for the marketing right i guess of the show. i know and we're like uh yeah duh i know it's it like, really Who so doesn't want for that you guys? exposure you guys like, already I'm made worse. it
0: you're on the judging panel don't you see right? where you're sitting like you're fine
1: <laughs> yeah it's so true it's so true <laughs> but i've got to tell you i mean like talk about i think that might have been one of the most stressful things i've ever done in a good way but um you know, you just think about like, you go on and it's so nerve wracking and it's intense. I mean, they're all yelling over each other and just getting peppered with everything. You just feel like you're like in the ultimate like battle of your life, you know, and you come out and you're just exhausted. You're like, okay, I just like left it all out on the field. You know, I I played as hard as I could. And then the day that your episode airs, I mean, you don't know, like we were in there for an hour and so you don't really know what's going to be in the seven minute segment, you know, kind of the dramatic points. Um, and everybody in your entire, like, like, multiple multiple circles like babysitters from second grade are reaching out to you telling you that they have a watch party that's happening you know and your foreign exchange family in Spain and you know your New Zealand family and I'm just like oh my god like everybody in the entire world that I've ever known and met is having a watch party at their house right now to watch our episode and that's like a crazy thing it was nuts very very uh anxiety inducing but then pretty epic like when it yeah. finally airs <laughs> totally yeah so you said something earlier about how you're creating a
0: category mm-hmm. I'm curious have you read the book uh, play bigger no I oh, should though it's all about create being a category leader you definitely okay. should read it clearly
1: yes <laughs> yes
0: um yeah I was just curious it's all about uh, category creation and and what it's like or what to do how to build a, a category leader
1: kind of Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Highly recommended. Um, Yes. (laughs) So
0: is there something that you wish you would have known before you started your business?
1: What would I want to have known before I started my business? Um,
0: Did you manage people before you started your company?
1: I did. Not a lot, though. I mean, you really are like you're, you're learning on the fly, especially when you're growing really fast, you know, and you have a lot of people that you're managing and then you're managing people that manage people. And, um, that's just crazy. And so, yeah, I think like getting really good, um, not just advisors, advisors are really wonderful, but I think like what has been really great is having a CEO coach. And that's been just very helpful. And I think like finding ways to invest in like, getting that support that you need to, um, kind of have the, the people side of building your business, like justice, that it's not all on you, you know? So I, I kind of wish I had been given that advice early on and gotten kind of, uh, allocated budget for coaching for everybody. And, you know, having, giving everybody those same resources and, you know, so that you don't feel like you're the one that needs to kind of like fix all the people problems or, <laughs> um, but I don't know. I'm trying to think of other things I wish I had known. You just you're figuring so much out along the way. Um, I don't know.
0: Well, what's something you think most people don't know about starting a company? Is there something you think people maybe imagine it's something it's not, or you know, what do they not know about starting a company?
1: think what people don't I mean, it's definitely entrepreneurship is so glamorized, you know, and they like everybody thinks that like, you're your own boss, and then you are free and you have all this like freedom. And you're like, dude, that is so not the case. Um You are taking you are risking so much. I mean, to this day Gary and I have like crazy personal guarantees that we're still trying to burn off, you know, from a debt side. And, you know, you realize how many people you have on payroll and when things like coronavirus hit and you don't know yet how it's going to affect your business, you're like, Holy crap, we have a lot at stake. And not just for us, for everybody, you know, everybody's involved and you just like start to realize like, Whoa, this is a lot of responsibility. Um, so I think that, I think a lot of people don't really think about that. Um, my boyfriend's an entrepreneur and unfortunately his business was hit really, really hard with coronavirus and they had to lay off their entire team. And, you know, they had to, uh, they lost a huge amount of their net worth and it was just really rough to like watch all of that and to be like, wow, it could all go like that. You know, something Mm -hmm. that you've built for nine, 10 years can be gone, you know, with one crazy incident. So I think like people don't realize what risk is involved with starting companies and scaling them. And you know, that you have to really have nerves of steel for some of that stuff, you know, or, or yeah. figure out how to manage through it because you can have a lot of very high anxiety, no sleep nights, you know? Yeah, definitely. How has your business been impacted by the coronavirus? So we honestly weren't sure um, going into all of this what to expect. Uh, and, you know, because we're a high average order value product. Um, but what we ended up finding was, um, you know, it's, it's we've been very... Uh, We've grown a lot during this period of time, and um, you know it's just interesting to see how it's gonna how it's gonna affect our industry. You know, you look at how um, people are not able to have in person funerals right now, you know, and they're not able to gather to um, to have a funeral, and so. We saw all of these funeral homes overnight having to change their entire business models. They were very offline, and it was completely come in, we'll consult, then we'll have an in-person, you know, funeral. And they had to like completely adapt and and bring everything online and do all their consultations online um, at a time that they were dealing with unprecedented volumes of funerals too because of coronavirus. And so, um, you know, a few things that we did. Um, We actually kind of looked at like, how could we just add value right now? Um, So we launched a free um, digital arrangement tool for funeral homes. So it made it easier for them to digitize all of their materials and quickly like turn on an online model. And that added a ton of value and generated a lot of goodwill. And, you know, then we launched another um, fundraiser for PPE gear for funeral homes because they were not getting classified as frontline workers. So they were not getting protective gear that they needed. Um, so this was an area that Cuban was awesome. He recorded a video with us just thanking funeral directors for their frontline service. And that went totally viral within the funeral home community. And so because of those two things, we got all of these funeral homes reaching out to us saying, you know, we need these resources. Oh, and by the way, we would really love to partner with you guys. You know, we need different ways to be, you know, um, Generating revenue right now um, because we can't have events, which is our primary revenue driver, and so it just really accelerated a lot of partnerships within the industry. Um, while at the you know kind of other side on the consumer side, we're seeing a level of um, people taking their research into their own hands that we've never seen before. You know, usually you're just tr- relying on your funeral home, and now people are saying, "Well, what are my options?" And you know, how could I? grieve over a digital medium. And, you know, so there's just this total, um, openness that we haven't seen before. And, you know, I think our diamond journey being very digital, it allows for communities to come together digitally at a time that they need to, to be able to grieve. Um, and it's just created this openness too around death that we haven't seen before. People are way more willing to like talk about it, be open about it. We're seeing people more like doing a lot more pre-planning and like thinking ahead about what do I want when I pass? It's just, driving like a, an open mindedness that we've never seen before. Wow.
0: And so you've raised $4.8 million in funding so far. So talk to me about the fundraising process. How has fundraising been?
1: Yeah, so um our first uh round that we raised it was a strategic angel round beginning of last year in 2019 um and you know that was wonderful we we oversubscribed that round and pretty much everybody that invested in that round it was a 1.2 million dollar um oversubscription and um they were all founders and entrepreneurs and so every single person has had the you know 300 million plus dollar exit under their belt and so just to have people on your cap table that have been there have done that. They know the highs and lows, you know, it's just, they're just like the wind at your back. And that is, you know, one thing that I would totally recommend to any entrepreneurs that are looking for that initial round. It's like get good entrepreneurs, like as angels, they're just awesome. Where did you find them?
0: Actually, did you go through, like, how did you access these founders that were angels?
1: I think this is one of something that they're good at, um, is just, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know. I guess networking with with folks. It started for sure with our tech contacts. Um, you know, we knew kind of CEOs and CFOs of major tech companies in Austin, having been in that scene, and you know, end founders and entrepreneurs. And then they introduce you to somebody, and they introduce you to somebody. So it was kind of like following the lead of you know those introductions. But yeah, like I, I think I kind of like started to get to know a lot of these founders and then got a lot of them to introduce me to other ones. And um, so I think that's really how we did it. (laughs) I
0: feel like you have a hustle story
1: you should share. Like
0: I feel like you have (laughs) like, you know, I think maybe we're similar in this way that like hacking kind of resourcefulness. Oh, yeah. um, Networking, just passion, maybe. So tell me about a story where you really went for it and or did something crazy to get a hold of someone or
1: any kind of hustle (laughs) story. Oh man, I have so many of these. Let's see. I'll go with, well, I, I jokingly say, I have like three, I can tell you actually. Um, so, one of them, you know, getting to work with a firm was no simple feat. Um, we wanted consumer financing for forever, and um, we kept getting told no, 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 no by all the consumer financing companies. And so, um, I mean I like stalked the heck out of every executive at a firm, you know, like reach out to all of them, became their best friends, sent them like gifts, convincing them to help me, you know, champion this within the underwriting department and kept getting turned down and turned down and turned down and you know then eventually one of our angels um uh Suhail who's amazing, he's the founder of Mixpanel, um he is good friends with Max Glejkin who's the CEO and so he warm introduced us to Max. Got a no the first time, and then when coronavirus hit, um, Sahil and I were catching up, and he's like, "You should try again." You know, I think right now this actually might be a good window of time. So we went back again and made this whole case. Like, come on, you guys should really do this. Here's why we're helping people during a hard time. You know, et cetera. And we finally got a yes, and it was like literally three years of not giving up on <laughs> a firm telling us no a lot of times. Um, so that was pretty awesome, and then. More recently, I mean, I do this a lot with recruiting. If there's like a rock star candidate that is hard to get a hold of, there was a a candidate I really wanted to talk to, and they weren't responding to any of my LinkedIn messages. So I think I sent an email out to all my investors saying, "Does anybody know this person? Can they, you know, get me connected?" I reached out to the Austin Manufacturing Association, being like, "I know you know this guy because they're sponsors. Can you get me connected?" I reached out to employees there. That eventually, one of them gave me his cell phone, and I texted him and was able to get him into an interview process. So <laughs> it's
0: funny. I finally got the phone number. Oh my text goodness.
1: Him. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice hunting job. Oh yeah. I've like flown across country. Like we had a one the last one. It was like we were trying to get a hold of a scientist. Um at UC Riverside and was not answering emails or LinkedIn messages. And so we ended up finding the grad students that like studied under him convincing them to go to coffee with us flying across the state to go and get coffee with them. And they're like, Oh, you should really meet our mentor. We're like, Oh, we would love to. (laughs) So that was how we finally got that scientist to talk to us. (laughs)
0: That's awesome.
1: Yeah, it's really cool. So what kind of qualities or characteristics do you think make up a strong leader? Well, I think there's so many different types of leaders. Like what kind of types? I think there's people that, like my business partner, Garrett's a great leader because he's just so charismatic and passionate. And, um, you know, when he talks, people just like really like get excited and bought in. And he has just so much enthusiasm. He's so good at rallying the troops. And I think that that's like his superpower. And that's a great characteristic. And then there's people who are a little bit more reserved or soft-spoken, but they're so intentional with, you know, team members and, and thoughtful about, knowing that, that each individual person's success and helping them, you know, find that growth and that development and that fulfillment. And, you know, we're just really good coaches and, and mentors and take that job super seriously. Like those are great leaders. So, you know, I think it's, it's you kind of have to figure out what is your archetype, I guess. And then, you know, really lean into that and then know that there's people that compliment you. You know, i I prefer Garrett to run weekly meetings because I'm just not able to, uh, you know, he just has this like secret sauce that I'm never going to be able to replicate. But then it's, you know, kind of thinking about how are you sharing the vision as a CEO? How are you being really clear that everybody knows what we're trying to accomplish and by one and, you know, where are we going, where are we headed? That alignment is super important. Um, and then that you're never forgetting about the people side of all of it. You know, your company is not going to go anywhere without your people. And, you know, it's not about what they give to you. It's what you give back to them. And I think you just, you have to kind of figure out how you're always investing in that.
0: So just two more questions before we uh, head out.
1: Um, what's your grand vision for the future? What's next? So, I mean, at Turnova, really, what we are is we're a grief wellness brand, and our vision is to be leading a cultural movement that um, destigmatizes loss and opens this conversation up in a way. The headspaces and the calms, um, you know, really destigmatized anxiety and depression. You know, we think grief is just the next frontier of that, and that's really what we're tackling. So. A lot of you know the way that we see ourselves growing is expanding beyond just diamonds, and you know doing um, additional product lines and services, and you know resources. We've partnered with you know Baylor University on groundbreaking new grief research. You know when we have a lot of new grief theory that we're developing in house. You know really along those lines of grief wellness, what does it mean to be active within your grief and? You know, to find a community that has decided that they want to continue to honor their loved ones and talk about them, and you know, do things that um, help you heal through a grieving process. And so, a lot of our vision and, and focus is is really on driving those outcomes. You know, and and really uh, becoming the driving force that reshapes the entire death care industry. Because Lord knows it's it's time to it's time to change this industry, and it's time to remove or to change the culture that we have around grief in America. So,
0: Lastly, but not least, what advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? I know you've already shared a lot of really cool hustle stories and advice along the way, lessons learned. But uh, what final advice do you have?
1: I would say, know thyself. And, you know, I know it's weird to say, but like not everybody is cut out to be an entrepreneur. And that's totally okay. I think it's been very glamorized and glorified. And, you know, people think like being an entrepreneur is the ultimate. And so like, I feel like some personality types will try to do that when really they would be best suited partnering with somebody that has kind of that, you just, you have to just be so like risk oriented and resilient and, you know, just can fall down and fall down and fall down and keep getting up, you know, and, um, I think there's so many unbelievably talented and smart people that um, are perfect founding team members, but that try to, they they override, they they try to be that entrepreneur. And um, I think just kind of knowing who you are, are you the entrepreneur, you know, visionary? Are you the manager that is like unbelievable at setting up those systems and and structures? Trying to remember what uh, the third archetype is. But I, I think just kind of, being honest with yourself about whether you should be the person that's starting this company or whether you should be joining somebody who's got a vision that you believe in that you can add a ton of value to.
0: Absolutely. Did you take any personality tests to kind of figure this out about yourself
1: that this is something that you want to pursue as entrepreneurship? Um, I, I love personality tests. I'm a huge fan of them. Um, we use one actually in all of our hiring decisions called Culture Index. Um, so whenever we're hiring somebody, we take us kind of this survey that shows... Here's like the innate wiring of what we're looking for in this role. And, you know, you can be something you're not. You can totally learn to, you know, behaviorally flex to go and like do a role. But you're going to be so much happier doing something that you're wired innately to do and that you're wired innately to love. Um, And so, yeah, my Pattern is called the enterpriser so (laughs) I think uh I think I I I am a good fit for this path
0: (laughs) nice I'm gonna have to take this I love taking these kind of personality tests um (laughs) they always come back like you know pioneer entrepreneur just love pain you know Um, (laughs) (laughs) that is so cool okay I'll send it to you yeah (laughs) yeah awesome and I'll have to send you the book play bigger Yes, I would love. Well, that. Adele, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was wonderful meeting you and hearing your story. Thank
1: you so much. Of course, thank you so much, Lead. Amazing questions, and it's just fun. So, thanks for a high quality conversation. <laughs>